Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the many protests going on around the world, all with a very strong through-line of demands to reverse austerity, lessen inequality, and improve public services, all hallmarks of neoliberal economic policies. And I couldn't possibly do any of the country's stories justice if I tried to do them all. So instead, we're going to start with a collection of rapid-fire clips from Democracy Now!, reporting briefly on all or nearly all of the protests going on. And then we're going to shift gears and focus in on the protests in Chile, the birthplace of neoliberalism, as we shall hear. Now, before we get started, just a quick reminder that we here at the show are facing a very serious fiscal cliff at the start of the new year. Our advertising broker is starting a new program, and they are demanding that we begin tracking and spying on the behaviors of listeners, allowing you know technology to follow you around the internet and see who you are and what you're all about to benefit advertisers. And important note, it would almost certainly only be a benefit to advertisers, and it wouldn't even be more profitable for me to do that. So basically, me selling out your privacy for no benefit to myself, only to the advertisers. So if I refuse, which I will, then as of January 1st, this company is going to drop the show, we're going to lose access to a lot of our advertising funding, and we expect to lose about one-third of the show's total monthly revenue. To fill this funding gap, we need about seven new patrons, averaging six bucks a month, which is what it costs to get all the bonus content and ad-free versions of the show. We need about seven to sign up every day for the rest of the year. And if you can only afford less, that's fine. Every patron counts. Plenty of people are signing up above that level, so it'll all average out. So if you get value out of the show and you can afford just a few bucks a month to support us, sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. And now onto the show. Clips today come from Democracy Now!, Jacobin Radio, The Majority Report, The Young Turks, This Is Hell, and The Michael Brooks Show. A series of protests have swept the globe in recent days, from South America to Asia to the Middle East. In Chile, as many as eight people have died in widespread unrest that has rocked the country. President Sebastián Piñera has canceled the subway fee hike that initially sparked the protests, but demonstrators continue to increase with a national strike called for today. Piñera declared a state of emergency in Santiago and five other cities over over the weekend, imposing a curfew and sending the military in the streets in response to civil unrest for the first time since dictator Augusto Pinochet's nearly 20-year regime. At least 1,400 protesters have been detained across Chile. Meanwhile, in London, up to a million people gathered outside the Palace of Westminster to reject Prime Minister Boris Johnson's Brexit deal. It was one of the largest public demonstrations in British history. Massive anti-government protests are also growing in Lebanon, with reports of well over a million people pouring into the streets Sunday. Prime Minister Assad Hariri has given his coalition government a deadline of today to agree on reforms to appease the demonstrators, but many are already calling for his ouster. 
We want the three of them to leave. The President Michel Aoun, the Prime Minister Saud Hariri, and the Speaker Berry. If they don't leave, we will stay on the streets. We're going to sleep here. That's Lebanese protester Hiba Zabedi. In Haiti, demonstrators are also calling for the ouster of the government there. At least 30 people have been killed in widespread unrest in recent weeks, with protesters demanding the resignation of Haitian President Jovenel Moïse. In Hong Kong, hundreds of thousands of people flooded the streets Sunday as young people continue to call for more autonomy from Beijing. In Azerbaijan, dozens of people were arrested in protests Sunday against corruption, a lack of democracy and low salaries. In Barcelona, Spain, demonstrations continue following last week's jailing of nine separatist leaders over Catalonia's 2017 bid for independence. And in Pakistan, thousands marched to the streets of Islamabad Sunday to express solidarity with the people of Kashmir. Today, 8 million people are victims to curfew in occupied Kashmir. After the passing of 75 days, people remain under siege at their homes. This rally is to shake the conscience of the international community so that they can pay attention to the issue and Kashmiri people can get their fundamental right to self-determination. That was protester Raja Mateb Ashraf. In August, India withdrew Kashmir to semi-autonomous status, detaining thousands of people, cutting off all internet and other communications. The moves heightened tensions between the two nuclear-armed powers, India and Pakistan. At least nine people were killed over the weekend as India and Pakistan exchanged fire over the line, dividing the disputed territory. We begin today's show in Ecuador, where tens of thousands of people led by indigenous leaders are expected to again bring the country to a standstill today in massive ongoing anti-government protests. Demonstrators flooded the streets of Quito Tuesday to decry government-imposed austerity measures and a steep hike in fuel prices, despite a severe police crackdown. Civil unrest has been growing since President Lenin Moreno uh, and ended a decades-old fuel subsidy program last week as part of a so-called reform plan imposed by the International Monetary Fund after Ecuador took a $4.2 billion loan from the IMF earlier this year. He also announced plans to cut public sector job uh, wages by 20 percent, require public workers to pay a day's worth of pay to the government each month and slash their vacation days in half. On Tuesday, the sixth consecutive day of massive demonstrations, protesters successfully pushed through security lines at the National Assembly before being pushed back by police. Indigenous protesters approached the presidential palace. Police responded with violence and tear gas. On Tuesday night, President Moreno declared an 8 p.m. curfew in areas near government buildings. This is one of the protesters, Santiago Iguamba, in the streets of Quito. Just like in the period of the economic reforms in 1983, we want these economic measures to be canceled. Indigenous communities are here in front of you. We have the vote. Long live the indigenous movement. President Moreno declared a state of emergency last week, allowing police to raid homes without warrants and suspending the right to assembly. Hundreds of people have been arrested. The government's also cracking down on the media. Police raided the community radio station Radio Pinchincha Universal on Tuesday. Meanwhile, the defense minister, Osvaldo Jarin, has called protesters terrorists and criminals, threatening them with a threat of lethal weapons in a television interview Monday. 
Monday. Yesterday's mass protests come one day after President Moreno said in a national address he's temporarily moving the government from Quito to the southern city of Guayaquil. He accused his political opponents of attempting a coup and vowed not to restore the fuel subsidy. What has happened here in recent days is not a manifestation of social discontent in protest of government decision. No, the lutins, vandalism and violence show there is an organized political motive here to destabilize the government and break the constitutional order, break democratic order. Ecuador's former president, Rafael Correa, said Tuesday Moreno must resign or call early elections. And protesters are vowing to stay in the streets. This is the indigenous leader, Jaime Vargas, speaking to reporters in Quito earlier this week. Different social groups are going up against the neoliberal government of Lenin Moreno, mobilizing, uniting and organizing as the only way to defend the interests of the Ecuadorian people. We turn now to Iraq, where mass gunmen shot dead 18 protesters overnight and injured over 800 people in the Shiite holy city of Karbala. Nearly 225 Iraqis have been killed since a wave of anti-government protests swept the country last month. The protests in Karbala were attacked while they camped out in the city's education square uh, to— protest corruption, lack of jobs, and poor public services. Meanwhile, in Baghdad, hospital officials said four people died during protests on Monday. Another 109 were injured. The Iraqi government declared a curfew in Baghdad between midnight and 6 a.m. in an attempt to quell the growing movement. But hundreds of Iraqis defied the curfew by staying in Tahrir Square, the center of the protest movement. No to the curfew. We will remain here. The curfew is one of their filthy games and tales. Now they say vehicles are banned. Now they say everyone who doesn't go into the office will face severe punishment. Such things won't scare us. We'll remain here even if we lose a thousand martyrs. On Monday, the Iraqi parliament met for the first time since the protests began. Lawmakers voted to dissolve provincial councils, cut the salaries of some high-ranking officials. But the influential Shiite cleric, Muqtada al-Sadr, dismissed the measures as a, quote, sham and called on the Iraqi government to announce early parliamentary elections. We begin today's show in Lebanon, where Prime Minister Saad al-Hariri has resigned after two weeks of massive anti-government protests. Al-Hariri said he had hit a dead end in trying to resolve the crisis and announced his decision in a nationwide televised address. For 13 days, the Lebanese people have waited for a decision for a political solution that would stop the deterioration. I have tried, during this period, to find a way out, to listen to the people's voice, and to protect the country from economic, security, and social dangers. Today, I will not hide it from you. I have reached a dead end. It is time for us to have a big shot to face the crisis. 
I am going to Babda Palace to present the resignation of the government to President Mishaoun and the Lebanese people in all the regions, in response to the will of many Lebanese who took to the streets to demand change. Protests across Lebanon have brought more than a million people into the streets. They started earlier this month when the government announced attacks on WhatsApp calls. The demonstrations quickly grew into a call for revolution with demands for the resignation of all top government officials, early parliamentary elections, and the creation of a transitional cabinet comprised of independent experts to guide the country through its economic crisis and secure basic services like electricity and water. On Tuesday, many protesters welcomed the prime minister's departure but promised to stay in the streets until all their demands are met. We will pursue our movement. The means are not clear yet, but we are continuing until all our demands are met, because this resignation is just one demand out of many others we want. So let's just go now and begin by describing this massive, huge protest on Friday. And then maybe we can go into what triggered it and who was out there. Yeah, well, last Friday, 25th, was uh, definitely a historical day for Chile. This was probably the biggest, most massive protest, march, demonstration, however you want to call it, because it had many expressions. The press is saying that one million and two hundred thousand people were out in the street in Santiago only. You have to include many thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands in other cities, big cities in Chile. When we were in the streets that day, you could feel a sense of hope and also of, of uh, anger. And people are definitely demanding radical change in terms of the way life and work and our general existence is organized in Chile. There's no one set of demands, but you have a lot of people that are that have been demanding in an organized or unorganized way, a new pension system, better wages, pub, an actual public healthcare system, free education, and many other things. So you, you had a, a, an interesting mix of people who are members of uh, unions and, and political organizations and, and some parties. But then you had uh, the majority of the people in the streets were just regular workers and young people and, and elders that were basically protesting their conditions of life. Could we go just for a moment, Pablo Buffon, because when you described how many people were in the streets in Santiago alone, you know, I was doing a calculation in my head in a country of, what, 17 and a half, 18 million people in Chile now. Yeah. If you were to translate that to the United States, it would be almost as if 18 to 20 million people were in the streets here. And I think people should just think about that for a moment to get a sense of the gargantuan size and import of this huge mobilization. And maybe you could just tell us a little bit of how, you know, what triggered it. We mentioned the metro price rise, but then how it kind of just mushroomed. And as you mentioned, the breadth of discontent grew and just brought everyone into the streets. So maybe we could start with, go back to that. Right. There's definitely an accumulated anger throughout the years. And 
the analysts on TV are calling this a crisis of expectations. People who have been living for too long in a democratic government and living in this, what they call the, the Chilean miracle in of the economy. But this is not exactly a psychological thing. It's not something that people experience in their minds only. This is definitely a crisis of the regime that we're living. And that's basically the neoliberal policies that were implemented by the Pinochet dictatorship during the 70s and 80s. And so... I saw a great poster from the march that said neoliberalism began here and it ends here. And that ties in with the, you know, the title of your article, which is taken from something that someone said, not 30 pesos, but 30 years. Maybe you, you started to talk about that a little bit, Pablo, but could you elaborate? Yeah. So that poster that was uh, all over the web, it's not about 30 pesos, it's about 30 years. It's basically a reference of that crisis of neoliberal regime, economic, political crisis in Chile. It's interesting that it was, I would say it's a, it's a huge mistake by the government that actually sparked the rebellion. People were protesting the repression of the high school students who were protesting against the hike in the, the public transport fair. But then the government decided to declare a state of emergency, and that brought not just the 30 years of a democratic, liberal democratic regime, but actually the entire history of oppression by the military and repressive governance in Chile. So as of today, it's not just about 30 years, it's about the entire history of colonial and capitalistic existence in Chile. Because you've we've seen the military being used by the government of Chile in massacres, not just during the dictatorship, but also before that. And so this seems to be a, a, a very profound crisis in Chile. Even the words Pinero chose to use were so horribly reminiscent of what Pinochet, Pinochet said almost word for word, we're at yeah. war against a powerful and relentless enemy that respects nothing and no one. And I think, you know, Pinochet used almost the same words to describe an enemy. And as you said, to have the Chilean military in the streets, the Fuerza Armada, and to have the Carabineros, you know, that with their violent past as a sort of emblem or symbol is, is really awful. And Chile's not at war with any other country, nor has it been. When they're called out in the street, it's, you know, civil unrest. It's, it's yeah. against their own people. And also, we hadn't seen a state of emergency declared in the context of civil unrest or protests. Last time we had a state of emergency was during the earthquake, in the aftermath of the earthquake in 2010. Right. So it was definitely, for my generation, I was born in the, in the 80s, so I didn't directly experience the dictatorship. But we have that intergenerational trauma inherited from our parents, from our parents and, and older generations. But for our generation, it was the first time we had a state of emergency in that context. It was the first time we experienced the, the curfew, which was something that was very common in during the dictatorship. Right. And this time, people were not afraid. So, And people defied the curfew that was declared in last Saturday. And people were in the street just, just being there and, you know, banging empty, empty pots. That is something that is very common in Chile during the protest, something that comes from the dictatorship, too. So the resemblances are everywhere. And that tells you a lot about the continuity of between the dictatorship and the democratic regime. So when we see 
a state repression and, and not just the police and, and the riot police, but also the military being used against people who are protesting basically their life conditions, is that we're seeing that that's the military counterpoint of a capitalist democracy and the way the, that capitalist democracy has existed in Chile in the past 30 years. So when you connect that with the fact that people are not in the streets demanding one specific thing and that every attempt of the government to solve the crisis, first, they, they announced that they were going to freeze the metro prices. Mm -hmm. that, and people were still protesting. And then right after that, they declared the court curfew. Then they announced that they were going to build uh, work on a, a new social agreement, a new social agenda with some of the political establishment parties. People were still in the streets. Then they used the media to show that everything was normal and then try to sort of a normalizing agenda everywhere in the media. And people were still everywhere. So it's like they can't count on their regular weapons, literal weapons, but also metaphorical ones, to actually block social change, which is something that's the, that, that may be the most relevant feature of our political regime, is that social change is completely blocked, not just by the government, but also by the, the whole set of institutions of the state. One of the things, Pablo Abufam, is that you said that this protest that really is about inequality and, you know, the traits of neoliberalism as it has existed in the last 30 years began with the Pinochet government, but that it also called into question capitalism as a whole and colonialism. So it goes back, goes into something far deeper in a way. And I would like to hear that because many people, you know, around the globe who are have been going into the streets are doing so because after the Great Recession of now a decade ago, the only gains that have come have gone to the top and not to the population anywhere, literally. And so there's a sense of, you know, people are fed up with that. But in Chile, you're saying it's going a lot deeper. And I'd like maybe if you could just to spend a moment talking about what politically relevant traits of neoliberalism are motivating people into the streets and motivating the movement. And, and would you call it, like you said, it's anti-capitalist. Is it because people see how privatization has created inequality, not efficiency as it's promised? What's really driving this? There doesn't seem to be a clear line of discourse or an interpretation that can actually explain the whole movement, the whole revolt. Mm -hmm. You can just try to look back the last 30 years and then just see, I mean, just see the, the data. Half of the workers in Chile earns less than than the poverty line. 50% uh, of people have a, a pension that is less than $200. Mm. And then the, the level of debt that we live in that's basically the way that we can survive. I mean, a, a lot of people buy their, I don't know, like leisure and go to the, I don't know, buy cars or, or, or other stuff, but they buy their food and their clothing with credit cards. Mm -hmm. And so that's basically the way the, the so-called Chilean miracle has had the chance to survive. And so it's not that people in the streets are rejecting capitalism in the words they use, but if you put all the things together, it's basically the way capitalism organizes our social life and the political institutions that people are protesting. The fact that 
healthcare is privatized in such a way that not just it's expensive, but also that public funds, the the money that comes from, from our work through taxes goes to private institutions because they organize the whole system in that way. The same happens with the pensions. So that means that as I was saying, it's capitalism as an interpretation that you could say that people are protesting. People are just fed up. The most common slogan besides el pueblo unido jamás será vencido, the people united will never be defeated, which again has a, a strong historical resemblance with the popular unity period. The most common chanting and slogan is Chile has awakened. Mm. That we were in a deep slumber and now we're awake. Today's episode is sponsored by the Forecast Fest podcast. It's your source for the latest election news from debate previews and recaps to analysis of how voters are leaning in the early primary states. Every week, hosts Harry Inton, Kate Baldwin, and John Avlon bring you all the data and analysis you need to get smart and stay smart this election season. Each episode, they'll give you the most up-to-date forecast for who's ahead and behind in the race for the White House and for Congress. But they won't just give you the what, they'll also give you the why. So you want to understand how the impeachment inquiry might affect the 2020 presidential race. You want to get into the weeds on jungle primaries and polling methodology. You want to get unique political analysis rooted in data on major campaign issues like healthcare and climate change. From historical context to the latest polling, Harry, Kate, and John have you covered. Subscribe now to the Forecast Fest and stay informed of every twist and turn on the road to November 2020. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Um, in Chile, there have been uh, mass demonstrations going on for several days now. The immediate precipitating cause, I believe, was a fair rise in the subways. The first response from the Sebastian Pianera government, which was elected a couple years ago, he's a right-wing uh, businessman, he represents the right in Chile, was that people of lower incomes should ride the subways and use public transport in non-peak hours if it was too much for them. So oh in other words, God. go to work earlier and earlier and go home later and later. You should suffer as a person and as a social economic class because of new austerity. Now, the demonstrations have been aggressive and powerful and you have military control in certain parts of the city which have not in certain parts of the country which has not been the case since the formal end of the Pinochet dictatorship. Augusto Pinochet, of course, came to power in 1973 with the backing of the United States. It was Chile, September 11th. There was a powerful leader uh, in Salvador Allende and associated social movements. The CIA and the Nixon administration helped put an end to it. And Augusto Pinochet would go on to kill thousands of innocent people in Chile. The Chilean government would... Uh, actually commit an act of terrorism in Washington, D.C. when they blew up a, tele, um, a former ambassador's uh, car in a car bombing, was speaking out against the regime. And they would coordinate, well, along with uh, the United States, with other right-wing juntas across Latin America in something called the Con Operation Condor, where they coordinated across borders to murder liberals and leftists uh, and commit atrocities. So 
there's a huge amount of visual and political power in seeing the military back on the streets. Let's play a little bit of uh, footage here from some protests in Chile uh, and then come back to me. I guess not. Okay. So uh, Pinera has backed down on the subway hike. Um, but the bigger context that exists here is that, you know, unlike in Brazil, where because the labor union movement led by Lula in the 80s was instrumental, the military dictatorship was in no small part, was brought down in the main by the labor union movement. Its democratic constitution did some real things to uh, ensure labor protections. That's under assault today. Uh the Chilean transition did not – it got rid of Pinochet. It formalized democracy. But it did not have corresponding reforms in the structural inequities that have defined Chile for hundreds of years. I mean, Chile is relatively wealthy, and it might be the most unequal, if not one of the most unequal in uh, the region. So you've had some social democratic governments, which have done some decent reforms, but they are certainly not radical. They have not had the same types of achievements in terms of poverty reductions that other pink tide governments had, as an example. Uh, and now you have a right-wing oligarchic government, which uh, certainly has remnants that go back to the Pinochet era. And this follows the World Bank IMF pattern. I mean, we're going to get to Lebanon and Iraq in a second. I've been following Haiti and Ecuador extensively on TMBS. Please look up what's happening in Haiti. Uh, very specifically, it's extremely important. These are all World Bank IMF guided austerity policies that still terrorize most people across the globe in conjunction with local elites. That's the context of what you see in Chile. And it corresponds with existing radical social movements that exist in the student sphere, that exist in the communist sphere, that exist in the indigenous sphere. I'm so glad you're doing this story because not only is this a microcosm for what is happening globally, you know, there are protests going on in Lebanon for similar reasons, and I want to break that down in a second. But we saw this also happen with protests and resistance in Sudan and Algeria earlier in the summer. And so the the violence that you saw there in the previous clip is reminiscent of a time in the 70s and in the 80s mm -hmm. when there was a really severe military junta in power, Pinochet, who was tried on international crimes and actually evaded it by being a fugitive in another country. But that his rise was the reason for this moment. The culmination of the protests isn't because of a fee hike in the metro passes and the way that it's portrayed in the media that it's this minor fee hike. It is part of the tipping point to um, a package of austerity measures that were very much influenced by something called neoliberalism, which is is also known as free market fundamentalism. And the key thinkers of this type of um, uh, economic policy is uh, Milton Friedman. And Milton Friedman influenced a group of folks called the Chicago Boys, mm -hmm. who were Chileans that were trained under him at the University of Chicago, and then implemented this really horrifying neoliberal agenda for Chile, where there was a developed booming economy, mm -hmm. but 
there was growing, growing wealth disparity. And what that translated into, so I'll give you an example of what Milton Friedman believes. And he argues that there is a natural unemployment rate. And if we dip below that unemployment rate, which means there are less people who are unemployed, it means that inflation will accelerate. So they are going for a certain amount of unemployment. And they are trying to hit you in the jugular with austerity measures to make the economy favorable to Basically, American corporations right. at that time period, and and the United States has been very much involved in in countries like Chile. Uh, you know, Nixon was very much behind uh, the coup d'état that took place uh, and uh, removed the socialist president uh, Salvador Allende from power. Yes. And so, uh, you know, the CIA, the U.S. CIA, I, they have gone in and purposely assisted with these types of coups to overthrow individuals who. The US saw as a threat to business interests. Right. And I just want to say when we talk about 9 11 for Chileans, September 11th, 1973, when a democratically elected Allende was deposed by the military junta that Pinochet led, that was a dark day for Chileans because it set all of this into motion mm-hmm. as well. And, and I mean, Pinochet, the brutality under Pinochet is, is, is legend and story. But there's another part of this, I think, and it relates to America. And that's the the disparity in in wages and the disparity economically. You're seeing a power in Chile. I mean, this is 18 million people, and they've had this incredible boom economically. At least it's perceived that way, as Anna was just saying. And yet, so many are not participating in that boom, right? So now you have this downtick, and the economy's got a little soft. And everybody who was disenfranchised from the boom is even more disenfranchised during this economically lean time. Uh, so now to our country, where we also have an increasing disparity, the haves and have nots, the gaps have gotten bigger. And so uh, am I saying that, you know, we're looking into a crystal ball as to what might happen in America? In a way I am, when I certainly think it's a warning shot that, you know, this is the result of tremendous economic disparity and, and that when that, when that gap gets so big that people feel a sense of oppression economically, you do get this pushback and that's what's happening in Chile. So what's interesting is, you know, I had a conversation about this with my mom last night and, and so I brought up, you know, the unrest in Chile, in Lebanon, people rising up, especially in response to inequality and the lack of economic opportunities. And Armenia just went through its own peaceful revolution referred to as the Velvet Revolution. My mom, who grew up under you know Soviet rule in Armenia, was like, there's something about Americans. They just will not rise up. And I think it's because we, I don't think it's because of the people. I think that we have this entire infrastructure put in place that immediately minimizes and belittles any type of movement. I mean, you see it right now when it comes to Bernie Sanders and the progressive ideals that he's pushed forward, right? And with the, you know, with the rhetoric that you see in our media in response to the ideas that progressives have that would actually do away with inequality. Like it's just it's really difficult to get people to mobilize people and to unite people. We're so divided when in reality the issues that we're frustrated about we we share that commonality. Yeah, but I would also argue that the way the media portrays 
uprisings as riots, mm -hmm. we can't see when those moments are happening. So 1992, the uprising that happened might have been in response to Rodney King, but it was actually about the deterioration of neighborhoods as a result of extreme divestment from the industrial um, the industrial boom that had happened in Compton, but then withdraw because of outsourcing jobs. Mm -hmm. And that people felt that, that's why they were looting local stores because they saw people taking over their neighborhoods and no jobs being available. And on top of that, they were being attacked and brutalized by police. So that moment is a moment of uprisings, same with the Watts riots as well and um, in, in um, uh, Detroit. So those uprisings are moments, but we have to be able to read them in that way. In the same way that you wa you're watching American media coverage call these riots in response to a fee hike for the Metro. But again, they weren't looking at the fact that it was mostly students who were hopping across turnstiles as a form of protest. Yeah. And then it was the state's forces responding violently that then had folks burning up the subway station. And that's what we forget. That's how that's actually a textbook of how it happens everywhere around the world, including Syria, is that the state responds violently with tear gas, um, with actually, which is something that's internationally unlawful. It was banned in 1997. And then people resort to whatever is left. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and just to go back to the point, and I see it all the time, the media constantly referring to this as people who are upset about a fair hike. No, that's just the straw that broke the camel's back. It reminds me very much of how the media covered the yellow vest movement in France, right? They made it appear as though they were upset over a gas tax and that was it. And and that message was then co-opted by the right wing in America to spread this message of see, taxes are unpopular, don't <laughs> raise taxes. But it wasn't just about raising taxes. That was the straw that broke the camel's back in France. And you know, the people of France are very politically active and, and they'll rise up the second they feel that uh, there's this push for austerity or anything that could lead to more inequality. Thank uh, you. That's a great, con yeah, God, yeah. you made that point because that's a great contrast to the US. So there really is a, a sense in Europe that this is, there's an activism there. There's a let's take to the streets there that you just don't yeah. find in the US. Well, we, we yeah. did have that when unions were stronger, mm -hmm. right? So there was a, there was a historic sort of um, deal that was struck with GM employees. They were able to negotiate what they needed, but it was, the unions were very much crippled by Reagan, who ended up firing um, all the t air traffic controllers. You remember that moment? That was when he really flexed his arm and they were protesting, they were on strike. And then he said, guess what? I'm not neg negotiating with you guys, I'm gonna fire you all. And that sent a shock wave mm -hmm. to labor and to union organizers. So this has been in the mix for a while in the US, is us getting accustomed to dis extreme economic discomfort. And I do want to give you one more quote from one of the protesters. This is an Uber driver who complained that he's unable to pay his student debt. Does that sound familiar? And can't provide a decent life for his family. He told the Associated Press, quote, I'm protesting for my daughter, for my wife, for my mother, not just for the 30 pesos of the metro, for the low salaries, for the privileges of the political class, for their millionaire salaries. It's just there's so many parallels, exactly. You know, and, and, exactly. And you know, uh, solidarity with the Chilean protesters. Um, there's a brutal fight ahead, and we're seeing this type of unrest in other countries, including Lebanon. And this is something that a lot of people are dealing with. You're you're so right. This virus, this Friedman ideology that spread throughout the the world with the assistance of the United States has been so destructive to people, and the way that 
you know, economic prosperity has been reported in places like Chile. It's a lie. It's a lie. You got to look at the real numbers and it's a lie here in the United States as well. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Founded in 2013, hundreds of thousands of women have tried and loved Madison Reed for the way they revolutionized at-home hair color. Amy Errett founded the company and named it after her daughter because the status quo of hair color options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. With beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color, you'll look like you just came from the salon, but you'll have saved a whole lot of time and money because Madison Reed color kits are delivered to your door on your schedule for under 25 bucks. To get started, find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of the Left listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com, and use the promo code LEFT. This all started with fare evasion. Why fare evasion? What does protesting transportation fares reveal to us about these protests, about this uprising? Uh, as I discussed in my article, uh, fare evasion was really like uh, more of a, a token issue. It wasn't a really big raise. In fact, it was only 30 pesos, which is you know, I could find that in my couch cushions, no problem. And that fair increase wasn't even going to affect the students who all have a, their own separate card that they use with a reduced fare. So for them, it was really about a broader protest, that using that as a way to talk about the overall cost of living, especially in the capital city where everything is expensive from food to rent, to transit, to all the basic things that you need to live. And I think the students were already angry. They had a hard year, the high school students. And it was just a moment for them to do what they do best, which is to be young and feisty and to break rules and to organize in mass. That's uh, the inheritance of the student movement going back many decades is that they feel like they could be the first ones to take risks and step forward, even for issues that don't affect them directly, because they have a systemic analysis that shows how things like privatized education are very, very connected to things like the cost of living and other privatized institutions in Chile. So why would students, I actually had two questions here and you're kind of <laughs> going between two. Why would students raised with the legacy of Pinochet and the constant of neoliberalism, why would those who have been raised within such hyper individualism end up supporting causes that do not directly affect themselves? Wouldn't you think that the culture of neoliberalism would inculcate within these people an individualistic idea, not a collective idea? Well, I would say that absolutely exists too. <laughs> there are definitely two strains in the, the current uprising. You have people who um, 
maybe have an individualistic mindset who wanted to live the Chilean dream. You know, they thought that they would be able to, you know, maybe pay a lot for their education and go into debt, but that they would get a good job, a good professional job, and they would do better than their parents did. But that is even less true in Chile than it is in the U.S. So some people are rebelling from the perspective of they were, you know, they didn't receive what they were promised. They were promised a dream of where they would be able to participate in the economic success of the country, but only to discover that that success has really been limited to a very small class of people. So on the other hand, we have the politicized students who are coming from a leftist tradition, and they um, are, they never believed in the system. They We call them the generation without fear, the first wave of students uh, who were born after the dictatorship ended. They were born in democracy. So they, while they are very aware of how that affected the country, their families, often very directly, they didn't actually have to grow up with the curfew, with the state of emergency, with the military in the streets. And it gave them a certain sort of confidence to carry on the tradition of rebellion that maybe the generation before them was a little scared to do or a little too traumatized to continue in the same way. So you say that they were born into more democracy relative to the dictatorship of Pinochet, but how much democracy can you really have? Can you really be experiencing under the kind of neoliberalism that Chile has right now? Yeah, the theme of democracy is a really important one right now because people have talked about it as the return to democracy as a process, not just the moment that Pinochet got voted out. He was not thrown out. He was not put in jail. You know, he was removed by popular referendum. And there wasn't such a strong break, you know, after that moment in 1989 and 1990. So people talk a lot about 30 years, the 30 years since the end of the dictatorship. This was supposed to be a the, like the period of democracy or of democratization. But um, with so many structures in the government, the constitution, the system, and the economic policies uh, introduced by the Chicago Boys, the neoliberal free market economic policies that are still alive and well today, you know, it's uh, sometimes people would say that they feel a little bit more continuity with the dictatorship than, you know, you would expect. You write that President Sebastian Piñera has responded with force, resorting to levels of repression reminiscent of the brutal Pinochet dictatorship that ruled the country from 1973 to 1990. Is that popular? How popular is repression in Chile? Seeing as how, as you were saying, they didn't have a clean break from the dictatorship from Pinochet. Uh, so how much is that uh, repression still popular in Chile? Uh, well, it was the wrong choice. I think uh, Piñera probably was receiving a lot of criticism, even from his best friends in government, for calling for a state of emergency, because it immediately made people who maybe were possibly not so interested in the fair evasion campaign, um, or who were apolitical in general, maybe, they felt obligated to respond once they saw uh, literal tanks in the street and a curfew was called. Uh, 
people are alive today who had to suffer under the dictatorship. And it's like not an exaggeration to say that there is collective deep trauma around that. And people who could have ignored protests, because there have been protests in Chile forever, even during the dictatorship, even after the dictatorship, there have always been social movements, big rowdy protests. But to see the army uh, put back in the streets and being told to stay at home, that was something that people absolutely couldn't stand. So I think uh, Piñera's choice to do that really threw gasoline on the fire. People were not intimidated at all by the curfew. You know, people uh, enjoyed breaking the curfew. People set up barricades. People challenged the army. It was, um, it had the opposite effect. It did not calm things down at all. It really just made people much, much angrier. How much do you think neoliberalism is, it needs to be enforced? The only way that it can stay sustainable is through brute force. Yeah, well, um, that's my opinion. <laughs> I think there's a lot of different takes on that. But I think that if you look at the Chilean example, um, I think in maybe from the international perspective, especially from the U.S. perspective, there's this desire to separate out um, the brutal implementation of free market policies in Chile from the dictatorship itself. They said, okay, the dictatorship, that was the bad part. We're against human rights violations. We're against that type of authoritarianism. But really the the uh, neoliberal policies, those were separate. Those were coincidental and innocent. But I think that we could really see through the you know history of this country that really they needed the authoritarian backing to be introduced and enforced. And that even to today when we're supposedly living in democracy, you know, rather than give people the quality of life improvements that they easily could have done, the government, the government has chosen to um, crack down and that uh, it's friendly face that it had to the world is absolutely gone. You know, the mask has been removed and people can see what is, at the heart of things here now, even on the international level. Instead of falling victim to despair and futility, we were speaking with Corey Robin just recently about his book, The Enigma of Clarence Thomas, and he was talking about the conservative political strategy, the right-wing political strategy of giving everybody the impression of despair and futility, that nothing can be done, that everything is set in stone forever. Do you see a process within Piñera's policymaking where he seems to be trying to foment despair and futility amongst the Chilean people to end the protests? Well, I think the despair and futility was there before. That's the result of these like policies that have been affecting our lives, feeling poor, broke, um, out of a job, not being able to live off of your job. That was despair. And in fact, uh, it reminds me of another slogan I've seen spray painted on a lot of streets is that it wasn't depression, it was capitalism. And that sums up the sentiment that so many people thought that it was about their own individual suffering, their own mental illness, their own inability to cope, that it was their fault that they weren't able to make it under this current system. But a lot of people right now are having hope again because they're realizing that they were all in this together, that the system that had been, you know, kind of squeezing the joy out of life and making every day harder 
it was that. And that, you know, one thing that all of this civil unrest has caused is it's given people a little bit of breathing space. Like, you have time to meet with your neighbors. You know, the city is paralyzed. You're missing your paycheck. That's my case. You know, it should be a desperate moment. But instead, that moment is made better by remembering what life is like when you are not spending all your day locked in an office. You're with your friends, with your family. You're in the streets. You're experiencing community and togetherness. That is like the medicine for the negative effects of neoliberalism and capitalism on the Chilean people. And I think now that people have felt this again, they're not going to be so quick to let go of it. I am telling you, you are giving me so many goosebumps. We have to end this conversation. I've got one last question for you, Brie. We've been speaking yeah. with American anarchists living and working in Santiago, Chile. Brie Busk, author of the Roar magazine article, Chileans Stand Fearless in the Face of Repression. This is the second time Brie has been on our show this year. She was on back in March to discuss her Roar magazine articles on Chile's feminists. And you can hear that interview by going to thisishell.com and just search on the word busk, B-U-S-K, and you'll find that interview there. One last question for you, Brie, and as we always do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. To you, what explains why these protests, not just in Chile, but protests around the world are getting so little news coverage? There's a fantastic article at Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, FAIR.org, right now by Ellen McLeod, who shows how the major media outlets in the U.S. are ignoring the uprisings in Ecuador, Chile, Lebanon. Catalonia, the UK, and Haiti, but they're giving blanket coverage to Hong Kong. What would you think would cause the la- that lack of coverage when it comes to Chile? Uh, I think I read that article, and I definitely support that analysis. And the idea is, is that this is a movement against capitalism, against the cruelty of capitalism, against a system that deprives people of I don't know, of everything that they need to live and thrive. And I think especially in the U.S. context, let me tell you, things are a lot closer here to what we have there. The only difference is here people are striking back against it. And if I was someone who wanted to preserve the status quo, especially in the U.S., I wouldn't want people to be hearing about the critiques and movements happening in Chile either. And... um uh, particularly, I want to give a shout out to a well, shout out. That's a hilarious way of putting it. But I want to <laughs> make a statement of solidarity with the people of Haiti. Um, we have a growing Haitian migrant community in uh, Chile. It's been a big site of migration. Uh, Haitian migrants here have a really hard time. Uh, they don't just experience the effects of xenophobia um, that other migrants face, but they also are like a racialized migrant population. And they are really, you know, having a hard time of it here. And that many people are stepping up, you know, even at the risk that participating in protests means as a migrant, they are advancing their demands. And I would say like, you know, we have more in common with each other than not. And I hope that what is happening here can continue to connect with the similar struggles around the world. And I, I would really like something to happen in the U.S., so uh, get on that.
in a very basic sense, from Chile to Ecuador, Haiti, Lebanon, Iraq, and even still what's spinning out of Sudan that we've covered a lot on this show. I would go, if you're a patron, listen to the illicit history with Ahmed Cabello, and we're going to have him on again uh, the show soon, is that these are anti-austerity uprisings. These are anti-neoliberalism uprisings. These are about economic justice in the broadest sense of the word. And that's really significant for three reasons. One, as you just put it perfectly, this is global and it manifests in a variety of different ways, but it's showing a common pattern of dissatisfaction, whether we're in the post-industrial hollowed out United States or United Kingdom, or even in Iraq and Lebanon, where sectarian governance have produced such dysfunctional outcomes and have sort of kept a tenuous peace, but kept created these very corrupt uh, very dysfunctional patronage networks, which correlate and reinforce global capital um, and have drowned out people's needs. What set off the movement in Lebanon was attacks on WhatsApp yeah. and, and things emerged from there. What set things off in Chile was a fare increase on the subways and on public transportation. The government of Pinera uh, initially told poor Chileans and middle-class Chileans, if you can't afford the fare increase, just ride during non-peak hours. And that was what set things off. And now you have in Chile, they back down on that rage increase, but they've also had on that fare increase, but they also have military on the streets of the cities uh, in a way that you've not seen since the U S backed Pinochet dictatorship. And I want to say, you know, and then of course in Ecuador, world bank on IMF plans, Lenin Moreno, a total sellout and capitulator of the United States, Haiti, which is, endlessly abused in this tripartite system of U.S. and French exploitation with abusive U.N. peacekeepers, with World Bank IMF uh, plans, which have just endlessly devalued the country, a place that had to pay a price for liberating itself from slavery, like a literal mm -hmm. price to the French. Yeah. Then you have um, a corrupt, parasitic local political elite, Right. All of these uprisings are happening. And it's very interesting because the ones in Latin America and the Caribbean uh, are not covered in the United States or they're covered in the generic like, oh, look at some brown people rising up, whatever. In the Middle East, they're covered, but they aren't necessarily anchored in the real anti-capitalist movements, which they are. Then you go to Hong Kong. Where, and again, I've always, look, there's plenty of distinctions inside what's happening in Hong Kong. We can have critiques and so on. But the basic premise that people want to make sure that they protect their liberal rights, we obviously support. And it would be hypocritical and nonsensical, frankly, to not support them. Are there reactionary tendencies? No doubt. All the rest of it, blah, 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 blah. But those protests that are about asserting liberal rights are valorized and obsessed with in the Western press. And movements that are about the economic base are ignored, delegitimized, or misreported. I mean, even if you go back to the Arab Spring, we're going to be talking about Egypt a lot more in the next couple of weeks. If you go back to the Arab Spring, yes, of course there was a student movement, and there was a feminist movement, and there was a religious movement. A major thing that put pressure on the Mubarak regime, which led to that coup, because at the end of the day, it was a coup that removed Mubarak, was when factory workers in the second city of Alexandria started striking. That's when you have the pressure base. 
I didn't see a single goddamn article in the New York Times about the striking workers in Alexandria. I saw a million articles about how they were using Twitter because that was back in the day when it was all about jerking off to how liberating these web platforms were, which, by the way, the Sudanese government were pioneers in setting up fake Facebook groups and saying, we're going to be protesting here in this part of Khartoum or whatever. And then they'd show up and it was secret police there to round them up. So these things were never these innately liberating tools. So anyways, I, I think there's a pattern here. It's a question of capital. It's, and it's profoundly encouraging, particularly in the Middle East, the cross-sectarian base and the statements coming out of people saying, I'm Shia, they're Christian, they're Sunni, whatever. We all are not getting living wages. We all are not living well. We've just heard clips today, starting with several short Democracy Now! clips from the past three weeks, giving a glimpse into all of the protests erupting around the world. Jacobin Radio gave the overview of the protests in Chile. The Majority Report gave some historical context going back to Allende and the Chilean Constitution. The Young Turks related the cause of the protests in Chile back to the U.S. context. This is Hell focused on the emotional impacts of neoliberalism that are driving the protests. And finally, we just heard the Michael Brooks show bring it back to the through line that connects all of these protests around the world together. Members will hear more detail on Milton Friedman and the Chicago Boys, as well as one example of neoliberalism in Chile, the privatization of their pension system. You may recall us trying to do that back in the George W. Bush years and uh, thankfully averting that disaster. To hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, this is Trey from Corvallis, talking about healthcare. I'm all for Medicare for All or universal healthcare. Any of those, um, I think what's missing from at least the discussions I've heard on things that you've played is that I don't think that whatever we put in place for our insurance is going to solve the problems we have in healthcare. I'm not a big fan of Bill Maher doing the fat shaming, but when that recently happened, it just reminded me that, that most of our problems are from what we eat. And it's not a failure of personal responsibility. It's our entire food ecosystem and what we have supplemented our farmers by paying them for growing more corn than we need and more soy than we need. And that's what we're, we're eating too much and we're eating too much that's unhealthy. And it's too easy to get that and it's harder to get healthy food. So I think that a discussion of health care as far as insurance goes, is, isn't it going to solve the problem? We can have great health care, but if we're still eating all the crap we're eating, we're going to be stuck where we are right now. So I think that, that a solution needs to involve changing our food ecosystem as a country. That's the only way we're going to get healthier. Anyway, not very eloquent, but that's my thought on what needs to, what needs to be included in the health care debate. 
Hi, Jay. I'm uh, Chris in San Diego. I was the guy that called in about the lying on ads. And I really appreciate your answer. Thank you so much. Do what you can to survive with your show. I really think it's a necessary part of what's going on right now. I would love to join the, the club and make make my uh, pledge to subscribe to your service. But I give all my money to uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign. Otherwise, I would. But I really think you ought to do whatever you need to do to, to survive with your show. And uh, I don't know you personally, and you might be an asshole otherwise, but I think your show is certainly non-assholic. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. All right, let's dive into these voicemails. We heard first from Trey connecting the dots between health care and health in general, uh, more specifically how our diet plays into our overall health. And I certainly agree that these things are connected. I also agree that as a society, we tend to silo issues and and talk about things as though they're completely separate. It's actually one of my semi-regrets about how I designed this show. You know, I sort of reflecting society I ended up designing the show to focus on one issue every episode, and then after doing the show for a few years, I began to realize that everything was connected, and so it makes it harder for those single-issue, single-topic concept episodes to feel like they really fit properly in the conversation that should be happening, but anyway, I... I I, I used to be pretty bummed out about that. I, I've begun to forgive myself for that uh, because, as I said, it's sort of a reflection of society and there's not a whole lot you can do. But, you know, I try from time to time to, uh, you know, mix and match some topics and, and make sure those connections are, uh, you know, are demonstrated. So in, anyway, we think of things as siloed. They are not. Everything is connected. Trey is clearly right that what we eat affects our health and our health affects our health care and vice versa. But I do think that he's taken it a bit far. He says that if we don't fix our health, our health care discussion about health care coverage and, and universal access to care won't solve our problems. Sure, I mean, not entirely, but then, I mean, he went on to say, we'll be stuck right where we are now. You know, if we if we don't fix what we're eating, then we'll be stuck right where... We no, we won't. We're not going to be stuck right where we are now. We're a generally unhealthy society with really spotty healthcare coverage now. If we fix our healthcare coverage, then we'll be an unhealthy society with universal access to care. That's a big difference. That's massively different. Now, then, if we could, as a society, make ourselves healthier, that would be even better. But no, no, no. Sure, these things are connected, but fixing one while not fixing the other 
would still be a massive, massive improvement. And then secondly, we heard from Chris, who's donating to Bernie. You know, I can't criticize people's financial priorities. I, you know, do whatever you need to do. Uh, He he mentioned there at the end that, uh, you know, he considers the show, if not me, but probably me too, to be a non-assholic which is a reference, if you missed it, to the previous episode, I, I discussed how on the bonus show, where only members are getting to hear this discussion, uh, we're, we're having a bit of a debate. I'm, look, look, I'm taking the position that I'm worried that I might be an asshole. It's not that I want to be, I don't, My, but I'm taking the position that I, I may be on that path and I'm worried about that. And so, you know, I'm struggling against it. And then uh, first Alan from Connecticut chimed in to say, no, I don't think so, but he didn't convince me. And and so now Aaron from Philly, another regular caller, chimed in, and she says that I may qualify as a jackass, but probably not an asshole. I, I would argue those are, are you know, separate conversations. Uh, so the debate continues. So all of that will be on, uh, you know, continuing on this week's bonus episode for members. And now a quick uh, update on the membership drive. I just want to let you know, like another little detail about how membership works on Patreon and, and just sort of the dynamics of all of this. Every month, some number of patrons' payments are declined. And it could happen for a variety of reasons. Obviously, the, the number one reason is that a person's credit card expires and they don't realize that and they don't update their payment. And so then when Patreon tries to charge them, it just doesn't go through. What's worse is if they don't get the notice for that, then they probably think that they are a paying member, have no idea, but the money doesn't actually get transferred. So currently, the number of patrons we have in total, the, the, the number of people who are paying right now is creeping up. We're right up to 600. We're nearly at 600. But the number of people whose payments have been declined, like they didn't cancel. They didn't decide, I want to stop paying. But the number of people whose payments have been declined is 71. So, you know, it's not like make or break. It's not an enormous number, but like that's a pretty big percentage. So I'm just letting you know, like, this is kind of one of those things that that we deal with. It's another reason why we kind of always need new patrons because people are going to drop off. Certainly some for financial issues, you know, that they're, they lose their job. They, you know, something changes for them. They have a big expense coming up and so they have to cancel. No big deal. Or, you know, or, or their payment is declined because they're in a really bad situation. <laughs> in that case, definitely no big deal. Please take care of yourselves before you uh, worry about the show. But that's the situation we're in right now. I've, I've sort of been counting up or down, depending on the day, as to you know how many patrons we need to get to our goal. And we would have broken through that 600 barrier, but all the payments go through at the beginning of the month. So we just hit November 1st, and we had a bunch of declines. So we were making progress, making progress, climbing, 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 and then, oof, got bumped back down because a bunch of people's payments were declined. So if you are a patron or you think you are maybe double check to see if if your payment method is up to date you know paypal credit card debit card you know whatever it is uh, you know just make sure those payments went through and otherwise you know if if there are financial hardships going on like again don't worry about it 
focus on yourself first. Uh, but as I said at the beginning of the show, I, I've calculated it out. We need about seven new patrons every day. And I, I guess that doesn't consider the possibility of people dropping off or having their payments declined. But in general, we need about seven new patrons each day through the end of the year. And we're on about that pace. Not every day, but you know, some days we get four, some days we get 10. Like it's kind of averaging out. We're on about that pace. But we got a couple of months to go before the end of the year. So if you're thinking about signing up, uh, you, you want to support the show before we hit our fiscal cliff and lose a bunch of our uh, advertising revenue. Now, you know, you know a little bit more about the, frankly, uphill battle we're, we're fighting here, but I'm still confident. I still think that if we get to the, you know, the, the middle of December and we're not reaching it, you know, we're not nearer the goal, I'm confident many of you will kick into high gear and, and pledge your payments. But that is sort of making me panic. So if we could sort of keep the the pace going for now, that would be really great and, and just make me feel better about the uh, the state of the show. <laughs> and, uh, you know, rather than giving me a heart attack and, and making me wait till mid-December to see if we can afford to, uh, you know, pay everyone for the work they do on this show uh, come January. Now, speaking of paying the bills, a quick reminder that the Forecast Fest is your source for the latest election news, from debate previews and recaps to analysis of how voters are leaning in the early primary states. Every week, hosts Harry Inton, Kate Baldwin, and John Avlon bring you all the data and analysis you need to get smart and stay smart this election season. Subscribe to the Forecast Fest wherever you get your podcasts. Now, that's going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Now for today's news by Limerick, at the end of last week, Beto O'Rourke announced that uh, he would be dropping out of the presidential race, and at Limericking on Twitter summed up my feelings quite well. O'Rourke feels he hasn't a hope, and reckons he's now out of rope. Most everyone said he should have instead tried running for Senate, but nope. <laughs>